TU sur RFI. Radio France International. Good afternoon and a very warm welcome to today's Paris Live on Radio France International. It's Tuesday the 31st of March. My name's Olia Horton. Over the next hour, we'll be bringing you news and features from France and around the world. As you know, our programs at the moment are a little bit different. We are in line with measures to try and combat the spread of the COVID-19 virus. So RFI has reorganised its program somewhat. It's on a slightly uh, different uh, schedule, but bear with us. We do have uh, all of our updates online as usual, and you can find the podcast as well there at the end of the day. Coming up over the next hour, we'll have our updates from, of course, here in France and Europe on the coronavirus situation, our correspondents in in Spain, Mexico and India all have updates for us as well. And uh, Paris Live, as I've said, uh, each day is broadcast Mondays to Fridays. I said yesterday it was broadcast at 1,400 hours GMT. It's actually 1,300 hours GMT because, as you know, France has gone into summertime mode. Lots to come in this programme. Do stay with us. As the World Health Organization says that Europe could be approaching its coronavirus infection peak, France has seen its death toll increase to more than 3,000. For more on this, I'm joined in the studio by Amanda Morrow for an update. Yeah, Olia, France's coronavirus death toll has hit 3,024 with 418 new cases, uh, new deaths rather, in hospital on Monday. So this is from a total of... 44,550 officially recognised cases. The head of the French Public Health Authority, Jerome Solomon, says that the effects of confinement measures that were put in place two weeks ago might actually start to be felt within a few days. So some good news there. Um, also, uh, we're also hearing uh, uh, more positive news coming from the Paris prosecutor, uh, Remy Hates, who says that lockdown measures to keep the spread of the virus in check are, are being respected by most Parisians. As of Monday, police had checked more than 303,000 people, so a lot of police checks there to make sure they had legitimate reasons for being outside and they had the proper documentation. Out of those uh, more than 300,000, only 25,000 people were fined. So 25,000, <laughs> it may sound like a lot of fines, but uh, relatively speaking, it's respectable. This means nine out of 10 people are following the rules. And this really does make a marked difference from two weeks ago when we had those scenes of Parisians picnicking in the parks mm. and, and along the Seine, which, uh, which really did lead to a lot of backlash. Mm. And in fact, they had to close a lot of public spaces down because of that. Now, businesses that have been affected by the virus have actually been receiving government-backed loans. Some 21,000 French companies that have been forced to close or to slow down work because of the lockdown measures have asked for government assistance to be able to stay in business. The economy minister, Bruno Le Maire, says that the state has already backed a 3.8 billion euro package. This would give businesses an average loan of about 135,000. We were also hearing some good news for farmers. Uh, the government ha had backed and on Friday, all food markets, which farmers actually depend on to be able to sell their products.
networks. And now we're hearing that a quarter of France's 10,000 open-air food markets will be allowed to reopen this week under strict distancing and, and hygiene conditions. Uh, the majority of those markets that, that are reopening will be very small with fewer than t 10 sellers. They'll be in, in the small towns, markets in, in the Paris area, uh, as well as in the east of France, which, as you know, was worst hit by the virus. Those markets will remain closed. And the government uh, has also uh, been petitioned to requisition factories uh, to into making medical supplies to uh, support... That, that's right, because uh, France has really struggled with finding enough medical supplies for doctors and, and nurses mm. at the front line of this health crisis. Five organisations have asked the Council of State to require the government to requisition factories into making masks and other protective materials. So this request also asks for the authorisation for, for veterinarians and all testing labs to be able to test for covid widespread testing it's mm. um, been identified as a significant way to be able to flatten the curve and relieve the stress on the healthcare systems so the groups uh, behind this petition include a collective of medical personnel um, ACT UP Paris an NGO uh, and the Association for the Defence of Constitutional Freedom and they're hoping that their petition to the highest court will end the government's hesitations over forcing factories into producing uh, these medical supplies and uh, uh, protective materials. Mm. And another piece of news coming in today is that as of tonight, midnight, Orly, which is Paris's main domestic airport, will in fact close its doors indefinitely. Yep, at midnight, uh, Airport de Paris, which runs Orly and also Charles de Gaulle, will close Orly to all commercial traffic for an indefinite period. And this is is essentially because of the drop in passenger traffic uh, due to travel restrictions uh, related to COVID-19. On Monday, yesterday, Orly Airport only had 20 flights and 1,000 passengers. And this compares to a usual day of more than 600 flights and 90,000 passengers. Uh, Airport de Paris uh, had already shut several terminals down at both of Paris's two main airports. Any remaining commercial flights at Orly will be rerouted to Charles de Gaulle, uh, the main hub for Paris and, uh, as you know, Europe's second busiest airport. And uh, globally, European air traffic has seen a, an enormous downturn, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right. 80% uh, to be exact. Uh, Charles de Gaulle uh, today sees about 10,000 passengers. This is compared to 200,000 Normally, Air France is one of the last companies to be operating flights with only 10% uh, of its original offer. The remaining passengers, they're most, mostly French citizens who are being repatriated or foreigners still trying to get home. France uh, has been working uh, very carefully to put diplomatic pressure to, to get the stragglers mm. home. Now, uh, just quickly, in other news, France, Germany and Britain have, in fact, exported some medical goods to Iran to help with the crisis over there. Yep, this is uh, another story. All of these stories on our website, uh, rfienglish.com. Uh, the first transaction, uh, this is the first transaction that was conducted under a trade mechanism to set up, uh, that was set up to barter humanitarian goods and food after the US's uh, withdrawal from the 2015 Iran nuclear deal.
This uh, news has come from the German Foreign Ministry, who says that the medical goods uh, were now in Iran and added that the Instex trade mechanism uh, and uh, the Iranian counterpart on the other side would now work on more transactions and also looking at ways to enhance the system. Britain, Germany and France said earlier this month that they'd offered a 5 million euro package to Iran to help fight uh, coronavirus there and uh, are also sending medical material including equipment for lab tests, uh, protective body suits, gloves, that sort of thing. Mm, and the reason they've had to use this uh, Instex trade mechanism is because of the sanctions that have been put in place in on trading and uh, Absol- things like absolutely. regular economic exchange. Absolutely. Thank you very much to uh, Amanda Morrow for that update there. Correspondence calls. Turning now to Spain, where the country reported its highest number of deaths from the coronavirus in a single day. The health ministry said 849 more people had died from COVID-19 in the last 24 hours, bringing the number of deaths from the virus to 8,189. The number of those infected rose 11% to over 94,000 people, breaking a five-day slowdown. The figures come as Spaniards are banned from all but essential economic activity. For more on the situation, there. I'm joined now on the line by our correspondent Sarah Morris in Madrid. Sarah, thank you very much for speaking to RFI today. Now, today's figures must be a blow to Spaniards and to the health authorities uh, fighting the spread of this virus. Indeed, uh, because there had been evidence that there was uh, some signs of of a slowdown uh, and potentially a peaking of the the curves would uh, arrive uh, fairly uh, uh, shortly. Uh, But that slowdown, uh, for instance in the number of new cases, um, the, the cases, um, total cases rose by 11%. And we had been seeing, uh, for instance, 8% and 9% over the past two days. Uh, the health authorities are saying that uh, it's too slow to say that there is a, a, an upward trend again. Um, they say that uh, you have to look back about 10 days ago when there were increases in those uh, cases of about 20 to 25 uh, percent. So it's too soon uh, to say that uh, this is um, uh, totally bad news. They also say there may be some signs uh, that cases have been accumulated over the weekend and are registered late. Nevertheless, very sad for the Spaniards to see uh, that record death toll of 849 more deaths, uh, particularly because uh, many people who uh, lose a relative to COVID-19 are not really allowed uh, to be with their relative um, in the last moments. And also new rules came in yesterday uh, that even funerals can't go ahead as normal. Uh, there's a limit uh, to uh, three people at, at funerals. So many people are delaying uh, holding ceremonies to see off their loved ones. Now, I understand that one of those infected with the virus is in fact the doctor in charge of coordinating the health service response in Spain. Is that correct? That is correct. Fernando Simon tested positive on Monday. He actually appeared at today's press conference on on the update of the figures today via video link. And uh, he said uh, that he was obviously... 
uh, staying in self-isolation away from other workers. Uh, but he was able to answer questions from journalists. Uh, but these um, diagnoses of people who are leading the fight against coronavirus, uh, that's particularly concerning for Spaniards. We've seen a number of eminent ministers close to Pedro Sanchez uh, be diagnosed. In fact, the Equalities Minister, Irene Montero, came out of quarantine and then it was revealed she had to go back into quarantine uh, because she contracted the virus again. Ah. Now, from today, uh, Tuesday, all non-essential economic activity uh, is banned. Who can go to work and who can't? Uh, Well, health workers clearly can go to work and then other essential workers who are listed by the government in its decree. They include many online deliverers, uh, also rubbish collectors, and uh, the people who have been told clearly they can't go to work, people working on construction sites, they've had to shut down. Um, many factories have had to shut down. Uh, there's been quite a lot of um, uncertainty as to whether people are working in sectors uh, that are uh, are classed as essential workers or not. And, uh, for instance, self-employed people have said that they're very concerned that they are not eligible uh, for state aid in the way that other company workers are. All the workers who are on an employment contract, uh, they've been told to stay home uh, for uh, this period and that basically they will have to make up the hours later but they won't get their salary docked. Uh, That's not, of course, the case for self-employed workers. Uh, So we're expecting the government to reveal some more aid uh, to help people like that, people in a very precarious economic situation as a result of these lockdown measures. Now, finally, how are the hospitals and the sick coping uh, with the situation? is a very difficult situation, particularly in those uh, regions like Madrid and Catalonia that have been uh, the worst hit. We've seen doctors and nurses still complaining uh, that they can't get enough protective equipment and the the government and the health authorities saying it is very difficult to source that equipment on the international market. Uh, They have said that they have had a plane load of about a million rapid coronavirus tests delivered uh, from Shanghai. Uh, They've also been um, receiving aid from uh, places like the Czech Republic that the government says it's very grateful to. Um, But um, it's a very difficult situation at those um, intensive care wards and people with the milder symptoms are being asked to, to recover at home as the hospitals really prepare for uh, what is a very, very difficult uh, struggle. Uh, Today, lots of the hospitals are complaining that they feel that the autonomous regions, the different regions within Spain, uh, should start to cooperate more because some of the regions are less badly hit. But we're not seeing what has happened in France of patients being taken uh, from one region to another to be cured. I see. Well, thank you very much for bringing us up to date with the situation in Spain. That was our correspondent Sarah Morris on the line from Madrid. Correspondence call. The Health Ministry report in Mexico says that the number of confirmed cases of coronavirus has risen to over 1,000. 101 of those have been in the last 24 hours. The country also reported it reported its first death from the disease back on the 19th of March, a toll which has now gone up to 28. 
Now, Mexico has one of the highest numbers of people suffering from various uh, health problems, obesity, high blood pressure and diabetes. And these are all conditions which make them significantly more vulnerable if they contract the coronavirus. Even though Mexico has a relatively young population, these underlying health issues are alarming health experts who are urging those who are already suffering from these illnesses to appreciate the elevated danger and stay at home. Earlier I spoke to our correspondent in Mexico City, James Blears, and I asked him uh, for more about the grim statistics about these illnesses in Mexico. Well, 10.3% of the population are aged 20 or over. Uh, um, you know, the, the, that proportion of the population is suffering from diabetes. That's 8.6 million people if we break down the figure. And... Uh, uh, the the increase in diabetes has been huge over the last six years. If we then go to high blood pressure, uh, the, the the picture looks a lot worse and a lot a lot grimmer. It affects 15% of the Mexican population over the age of 20 years old. That's 15 million people who who are affected by high blood pressure. Probably a lot more than that. Uh, the, the the statistics also suggest that uh, 75% of the population over the age of 20 are either overweight or obese. Now, this is actually with that's talking of tens of millions of people. Uh, in 1994, Mexico signed the uh, agreement for the North American Free Trade Agreement, the NAFTA, so it's called, and it's recently been renewed. Since then, a huge amount of uh, processed food has come over to Mexico, and it's become fairly cheap and available to Mexican people. The weight of Mexican people, average weight of Mexican people since 1994 has rocketed. And so if you combine these three elements of Mexico being the officially highest diabetes rate in the world, uh, and then the even worse statistics for high blood pressure, and also uh, uh, the fact that 75% of the, popula the population over the age of 20 are either overweight or obese, you have a time bomb, and that time bomb will be triggered by the coronavirus. These people are definitely, the doctors say, far more susceptible to getting coronavirus than the rest of us. So what is the federal government advising? Well, the federal government is advising uh, a lockdown for at least another month uh, and saying that, uh, that the only way that the, uh, the contagion can be spread is by contact. Uh, uh, um, and that it is being suggested airborne contact is a factor as well. So what they're doing is that they're going further than saying distancing of six feet or, or two and a, two meters almost two meters what they're saying is people should stay at home but as known the mexican economy is fragile uh, more than 50 percent of the, the working mexican population officially working me mexican population uh, are in service industries especially restaurants and tourism and so they can't lock down for that amount of time because they have to actually work and they have to survive, they have to buy food and, uh, and, and, and pay bills. And so it, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult situation uh, um, 
for millions of Mexican people. Those are the people who officially work. There are also the, the, the sort of underground economy, people who are, are selling things, market stores on the street. There are many of those people, especially in large cities like Mexico City. And again, they don't have anything to fall back on. And so uh, it, it's great advice uh, in theory and in practice, but also in theory and in practice, people have to live and they have to work. Mm. Now, Mexico's president uh, has a history of heart problems. Has he been setting any examples about restricting and scaling back his daily work routine? Uh, President Andres Manuel López Obrador has been setting examples. All of them have been bad so far. He has been going on rallies quite regularly. As, as recently, at the weekend, he was up in the northwest of Mexico at rallies and uh, he is courting controversy yet again, Olia, because uh, he met the elderly mother of uh, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, the number one uh, drug cartel leader in the world who is currently and probably forever in a day imprisoned in a uh, maximum security prison in the United States. He, he saw her uh, and he went over and shook her hand. She was sitting in a car and also said, don't worry, I've received your letter. That letter apparently uh, is requesting that she will be able to, or is asking to visit her son in the maximum security prison. But a lot of people in Mexico were saying, what is he actually doing going on a rally or a series of rallies over the weekend? And what is he doing shaking the hand of the mother of the number one drug trafficker in the entire world? Although, obviously, the mother's not responsible for what uh, Guzman does. He's over 21. It, uh, but it doesn't set uh, a, a good example. It's basically do as I, do as I, uh, do as I say, not do as I do. That was uh, our correspondent in Mexico City, James Blee, is there. International Report. Two Indian states have sparked outrage by dousing migrant workers returning home with bleach disinfectant meant to sanitise buses. The victims were among the millions of poor stranded after a nationwide curfew was announced without warning. The country's Prime Minister then sought forgiveness as experts said the 21-day curfew against the coronavirus could have catastrophic consequences on the population. Our correspondent Vikram Roy reports. The lockdown left them with no other choice but to walk hundreds of kilometers home. But scenes of men, women and children lined up and sprayed in Uttar Pradesh and Kerala have spread outrage, said Nikhil Day of the National Campaign for People's Right to Information Group. If you had any of us being sprayed in that fashion, that government would have been out within one day. It is not just a humanitarian crisis, it is a human rights crisis if we want to carry people with us. If we want to say we are one society and one nation, we have to look very deeply at what we are doing at the present time. We are just not going to be able to fight this together and we are just not going to be able to deal with it together. We can do whatever policies we want. 
we don't treat human beings with an equality in impoverished bihar state officials prodded hundreds of migrant workers into halls with iron grills the police guarded the makeshift prisons with guns drawn but deshraj nigam a government supporter argued there was no other option yes i can understand in normal circumstances things could have been done in a far far better manner but this is a crisis situation where they are trying to quarantine people lakhs of people trying to disinfect them yes i can understand they could have done much better nobody is denying that but in a given circumstances state governments are the front line governments to provide all kind of reliefs it was the primary duty of the originating state not the receiving state to do its duty ensure that people don't leave last tuesday prime minister narendra modi announced the total lockdown with no warning and as a result millions were forced on the roads trekking endlessly to get back home in distant states and some dying on the way added opposition politician yogendra yadav question we should be asking is did the government plan for something as big as this two whether it was communicated properly and three has the government responded properly to the signals that it has received after lockdown and unfortunately the answer to all the three questions has to be no 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 in terms of preparation this is no secret in this country that that people if they do not have anything to eat would wish to go back home you don't need to uh, have uh, intelligence units for that this is common sense heartbreaking images of this mass exodus have exposed the class difference between the workforce which keep indian cities running and the city dwellers they work for government critic pavan verma said the lockdown has backfired on india they don't have the wherewithal to buy their next meal factories work sites shops have closed they don't have an income there are over 2 to 3 million migrant workers in delhi alone it should have been anticipated that with these avenues being closed for them to survive their only option would be to trek home where at least some form of support infrastructure as exists traditionally in community situations will bail them out some states have set up wayside soup kitchens but others have chosen harsh measures to deal with the crowds in gujarat modi's home state clashes erupted after police arrested some homebound workers and as the prime minister apologized to the nation's poor his party colleague j panda said the stranded people must stay where they were their first and best option is actually to remain where they are and that's where the government needs to step in that's where the union government has made available very large resources that's where state governments are stepping in and providing aid the point is that has to be made effective and the confidence has to be instilled in them that they can stay there even if their thekedars are not taking care of them government will provide them essential this is exactly what needs to be done it is working in most states and so it must be made to work in all states and new york based indian physician dheeraj call warned india will pay a terrible price for the chaos it's very disturbing what i'm seeing in indian channels finally they woke up to my calls i'm seeing millions of people walking out of delhi walking out of metro politicians taking this bug with them to their villages so i really forward for private sector because you cannot put all the load on government this is something we have never seen and honestly speaking india needs to wrap up the manpower they need to be ready for stage 3 so that they don't go through what developed countries are going through anger was also rising in indian cities markets are shut and those open have run out of stock the government said 
thousands of freight trains were hauling cargo and tried to assure that no one will go hungry for rfi this is vikram roy reporting from new delhi paris live Indigenous leaders in the Amazon rainforest say the coronavirus pandemic is threatening to wipe out entire tribes. They're urging governments to take measures to stop outsiders such as miners, loggers and religious missionaries from bringing the disease into isolated communities. The Congress of Indigenous Organisations of the Amazon Basin, or COICA, represents 505 Indigenous ethnicities and more than 66 isolated Indigenous communities. It says the fragile health of Indigenous people, coupled with inadequate healthcare facilities means diseases such as COVID-19 pose an existential threat. RFI's Amanda Morris spoke to Koike's Human Rights Coordinator Michael McGarrell of the Patamona Nation, an Indigenous community in Guyana. He explains how illnesses make their way into remote parts of the Amazon. We have Indigenous peoples who sometimes live on the coast and sometimes go back to their communities. But beyond that, we also have miners and loggers in our communities, in our areas. And we believe that they can be, you know, the way in which the virus gets to our communities. And this can really pose a great threat to our communities because, you know, entire communities can be wiped out as a result of one person becoming infected. So at this point in time, you know, we would want the government to ensure that, you know, these persons are not in our areas and, you know, try to reduce the amount of people who are going to the, the communities. Imported diseases have long been a problem for the Amazon's indigenous people, with uh, smallpox and measles being brought in in the past by European settlers. So in terms of COVID-19, how serious is this threat? I mean, is it really something that stands to wipe out in entire tribes? It is. COVID-19 is the greatest challenge that we would have been facing now in terms of threats, uh, illnesses that were brought into our communities. And yes, we know that measles and others have decimated our populations, uh, but we were able to, to survive. But now we have this new threat, this new virus, which can do a lot more because as it stands right now, there is no treatment for it. It's like you get it. If your immune system is good, then you may be able to survive. But other than that, you know, they just leave you to die. And I think Our communities are not set up in a way where we have the medical resources to deal with something like this. And because our communities are, are small and they're closely knit, it means the chances of transmission within the community itself is even greater. It is for this reason that you know we would like the government to ensure that we're protected, that we remain isolated, that they put systems and policies in place to ensure that you know persons with the virus do not enter communities. And in terms of awareness, do Indigenous tribes, uh, uh, your own and others uh, in Guyana and, and other Amazon countries know about the dangers posed by COVID-19? And, you know, are people taking the necessary steps to protect themselves? As Indigenous peoples, what we have been doing is some of our communities are self-isolating. We're locking ourselves in. We're saying, you know, we're not giving permission for anyone to come into the communities Because we know what can happen as a result of the virus. And this is one of the reasons why, for example, you know, we are trying to get the president of Brazil, President Bolsonaro, to recognize that by allowing the evangelicals to get into the, to the isolated communities, you know, they can only do more uh, harm than good. We don't want outsiders who may have this uh, virus to come into communities and, you know, kill out our, our populations. These isolated tribes in Brazil, for example, they don't have immunization against even the, the common cold. 
And here we're talking not just the common cold, we're talking about COVID-19, which is you know, far more serious. You know, if this gets sent to their communities, then it means that's the end of that group of people. So we have to put policies in place to ensure that things like that do not happen. We know that the health of people living in remote parts of the Amazon has already been affected by the pollution that's caused by mining activities, which have contaminated waterways and the food chain. Is is that also a factor here in contributing to perhaps the, the, the fragile health of, of these people? Yes, that, that plays a significant factor, actually, because here in Guyana, for example, you know, many of our, our rivers are polluted by mercury. You know, there are miners who continue to work in our riverways. And even if they're not working in the riverways, they're working close to the rivers where the tailings of those mining ponds go straight back into the river. So a lot of mercury is present in the fishes, in the, in the water itself. Some people use that water to drink. So this in itself, you know, makes the immune system a lot weaker and you know, a lot more susceptible to, you know, diseases that may come along. In those areas as well, you would have like a lot of malaria, which also, you know, contributes to weakening the, the immune system. I mean, yes, we have treatment for malaria, but then the immune system may be weaker as a result of you becoming sick and more frequently. So COVID-19 really poses a great threat to us as a people. And for this reason, we really need to ensure that our communities are protected and we will do our part as Indigenous peoples, but then we also need the support of the governments to ensure that we are safe, we are free of this COVID-19. I mean, we have seen around the world what is happening and we don't have the resources here in our communities, not even in our country. To deal. Ah, France. We have food and wine, of course. And strikes and protests. There's art and haute couture. And those stripy t-shirts. But it's so much more. And we want to tell you about it. If you're interested in France, let us be your ears and eyes on the ground. We'll take you beyond the baguette to hear from the people who make France what it is. And who want to change it. To give you a fuller picture of this country at the heart of Europe. Find us on Spotlight on France, a weekly podcast from Radio France International on RFIEnglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. RFI, Radio France International. You're listening to Paris Live on Radio France International. Good afternoon and thanks for tuning in. If you're just joining us, it's Tuesday the 31st of March and uh, we've crossed the halfway mark of our hour-long show now. We've still got a little bit of sports news to come and a couple of feature interviews on cultural subjects to wrap up the show. Now, as you already know, our programs here at RFI have been modified slightly uh, in line with recommended measures to try and combat the spread of COVID-19. So we've reorganised our staffing a little bit, but uh, everything is up and running the program as you can hear is still going to air each day 1300 hours gmt across our fms in africa and of course uh, we're putting our podcast online at the end of each day if you've missed the program and our website is running uh, as normal so you've got all the news and features on there uh, our youtube channel if you haven't checked it out yet and of course you can contact us on social media and say hello and tell us how you're dealing with the coronavirus crisis in your corner of the world don't go away And that's the cue for a little bit of sports news. Now I'm joined on the line by Paul Myers and we'll begin with some football, I believe, Paul. Yes, football and, of course, the coronavirus uh, earlier. Barcelona's players, uh, the likes of 
Lionel Messi, Luis Suarez, and Antoine Griezmann. Well, they decided to agree to take a 70% wage cut while the state of alarm continues in Spain, where just over 8,000 people have died from the coronavirus. Last week, Barcelona's directors applied for an ERTE, which basically allows companies to cut staff costs while keeping those same employees on the books. Now, the first team at Barcelona have also confirmed that they'll uh, make contributions to guarantee that non-playing staff at Barcelona earn their full salary throughout uh, the coronavirus coronavirus, uh, crisis, which, of course, well, could last for months. Mm. Um, You've got to look at uh, the numbers here as well. There are about 23 uh, first-team players in the in the squad and uh, they uh, account for nearly 400 million euros wow. of Barcelona's turnover which of course is uh, very big so um, obviously 70% wage cut for the likes of Lionel Messi but um, they are going to show their generosity by um, making sure that uh, people you know who were cleaning the rooms and um, getting all the catering together that they stay on a, on a full salary. Now, uh, Barcelona's bosses aren't the only set of directors to ask for the ERTE. Atletico Madrid and Espanyol have applied uh, for the dispensation. Mm. I see. Well, something to follow there. Uh, now, on Monday, uh, well, yesterday, we were talking about uh, Karim Benzema uh, and uh, his airing of views on social media uh, about how he, he uh, likened the France striker Olivier Giroud to a go-kart, as yeah. opposed to his Formula One. <laughs> now there's uh, more commentary on social media. This time it's uh, the Paris Saint-Germain star Neymar just uh, kind of sharing a few tidbits about his personal life. Yes, I mean, he's been, he's back in his native Brazil and he had to deny flouting social distancing rules. Uh, he's been posting pictures on Instagram which showed him sunbathing and playing football uh, and foot volleyball with a group of friends. Um, Neymar says that they'd all travelled in a private jet with him from Paris <laughs> back to Brazil. Okay. And, um, so he's had to issue a statement saying, oh, look, you know, this house is secluded, it's near a beach, it's um, <laughs> lots of space, and um, it allows me to uh, train with my friends. And really, we've got to say, it's no different from uh, many people here in France who've gone to the countryside uh, to um, relax with friends uh, mm. during this corona virus uh, crisis. Um, but uh, on a more serious note, actually, um, Rugby Australia's bosses have emerged from their annual general meeting uh, this morning to announce uh, that they're going to lay off the majority of the, the staff for three months from tomorrow due to uh, the crisis. Now, Rugby Australia faces losses of up to 50 million euros due to cancelled test matches and suspended league games. Um, here's Rugby Australia's chief executive, uh, Raylene Castle. This is difficult times. This is difficult times for all staff within our business. This is difficult times for players, and I have an enormous amount of sympathy for that. The players are incredibly important to this game, as are this, all the staff that give their, you know, their heart and soul to make this this game, you know, be delivered on any given week. So, um, there's tough decisions that need to be made right across the sport. Um, the players are absolutely critical to that process, but we were absolutely determined to go to that process with accurate financial information, um, which we could only bring together once we finalised the AGM this morning. 
and that was uh, the Rugby Australia Chief Executive Raylene Castle speaking to journalists via video conference. Uh, <laughs> Keeping her distance. That, yeah, that counts for the poor sound quality. Usually she's in a press conference, mm. but of course with these measures, uh, everyone's uh, been affected and that was... Uh, via a video conference. So telling us that um, she's going to be, well, people from uh, Rugby Australia are going to be meeting player representatives, obviously by video conference as mm-hmm. well, to try and thrash out a future for the game in Australia. Of course, Australia, one of the big countries in World Rugby Union. So more on that uh, to come out over the next couple of days. Olya, back to you. All right. Thank you, Paul, for keeping us up to date on what's happening in the sporting slash coronavirus uh, situation because obviously we're not having uh, many matches to, to, to comment on at this at this point in time, but we'll definitely uh, uh, keep in touch with you, Paul, for any further updates. Thank you very much. Live on live. Ige is a businessman and the author of a recent book that was released in French called L'Heure de l'Afrique pour un développement durable et inclusif, which we can translate as Time for Africa towards sustainable and inclusive development. And it was published earlier this year by Herman Press and an edition in English is due to come out quite soon. This young man, originally from Benin, is a managing partner and African chairman of BNA Investment Bankers here in Paris and he was named the 2018 Young Global Leader by the World Economic Forum in Davos. Earlier this year, I interviewed him about his his faith in the African diaspora to rebuild the continent. Khaled Ige, welcome to Paris Live. Thank you very much for your invitation. Now, France has become a second home to you, but uh, you were originally from Benin. Yes. And I want to know a little bit about the things that influenced you growing up to lead you to become the man you are today. Oh, thank you very much for this question. It's a little bit difficult to answer it. Um, I grew up in Benin uh, until my 18th year old. I was in Ghana in Accra from one year to learn English. And then uh, I came to France to study for university. And uh, now I'm working in France since 12 years. Um, yes, France is is coming a new home. Uh, because, you know, French culture and West African Francophone culture is a little bit close because of the history that we are sharing. I'm talking about colonization. And uh, for an African that who grew up in a Francophone Africa and living in France is not, is not very difficult for me to adapt myself in France. But um, what I want to, to highlight is that the partnership between France and African, West African Francophone countries is something very important. And we want to renew this partnership. And as diaspora, if I can consider myself like that, I want to play a big role in this partnership. That's why I can feel myself very comfortable to be in Benin or to be in France today because I, comp- I find myself as an actor of the renewal of this partnership. Mm. Now, you've uh, written a, a new book. Uh, you've, you've also published uh, other works. And this new one is called, I've 
translated as Africa's Hour Towards a Sustainable and Inclusive Development. Are we calling it Time for Africa? <laughs> time for Africa, excellent. You've yeah, got your own yeah, title. Because yeah. for the moment, it's only in French. It's only in French. I hope you'll be in English at the end yes. of the year. Good. Yeah. Good. Yes. And uh, it's it's a wake-up call, isn't it? You're, you're ringing alarm bells a little bit? It's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call because I think my generation has a mission. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are the first generation that have a mass education. And we have the new technology as well. And uh, we, we are the first generation that have the conscience of the great potential for the continent. So I think we have, beyond the fact that we have to develop the continent, we have a mission. We have to breed the greatness of the African continent again. And that's the mission I'm talking about in this book. In this book. Um, what worries you most about the African continent at the moment? The big challenges that we are facing, not only in Africa, but also in the whole world. Security, terrorism, and climate change. That's that's the big challenge that we are all facing. And I think that Africa alone cannot face these challenges. We have to make cooperation. We have to collaborate with the other continent to come to, I would say, to overcome those challenges. Mm. Um, what are some of the su- examples of successful, uh, inclusive and sustainable development that you are um, promoting? Uh, I will talk about education first. Uh, education, I think, is a very important, um, I would say, tool. I can talk about tool. I can talk about parameter that we need for the development, inclusive and sustainable development of the continent. Because when people are educated, they can work for the future. They can understand how they will have a strategy to work for the future. They can even define themselves their future. They can create their own jobs, for example, because my generation is using startups and is using new comp- style of companies to create their own job because they know that governments and institutions have their limits now. So they know that they have to face themselves the challenges and create their own solutions. Uh, so I think the first sustainable, inclusive, um, I would say, tool or development thing that I see is education. Then I will come to democracy. It's something that we are all sharing today. We know rule of state is very important in our country. So all together, if as stakeholder of development of our countries, if we can share values, we can share interests of democracy. I think this can be a big thing as well. Mm. Um, now, uh, it seems that you are urging countries in Africa to focus on cooperation yes. rather than com- competition and yes. comparisons yes. And, and find their change from within, not yeah. rely on outside help. Yeah, and this because, is where the diaspora comes in, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, because this is very important. I don't know any country or any continent that develops itself with the help of others. It starts with the son and the daughter of those continents or discount those countries. So we as Africans, we have first to unify ourselves, to find a common goal for the continent. And then, as soon as we define that, we can bring those people for partnership. So do not confuse partnership with those people or working between us or among us with competition. First of all, we have to partner between between us or among us. Then we can partner with others. So come come together for the common goal is very important for the development of the continent. Mm. 
And and I see that a lot of young people, they look to Europe as a, a kind of a model. You know, they want to come here and we've got waves of people. Migration is just, it's going out of control. But uh, perhaps... There's, is there some way to convince them that there is a future on the continent, that they, they have their keys to their own future, yeah, this th young generation? Th that's what I, I said. Uh, this book is a wake-up. Mm. It's a call of wake-up. A call to the youth? Uh, yes, call to the youth. Um, you know, um, most of people in certain countries in Africa think that coming to Europe is one of the key parameters for success. Mm. And uh, this is a mistake. And that's the kind of mistake we have to correct. And uh, even I'm in Europe. You I are. Have to, yes, <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Even I'm in Europe. We have to find a way to create an ecosystem in our countries that will allow people to succeed as well. You know, my hope, what is it? Is that in the coming years, in 15, 20 or 30 years, that the Khaled's gaze, like me, will emerge from the continent. We won't need to go to Europe, United States, to study before coming Kaledig, becoming Kaledig. Uh, that's my first role, Patrol. Yeah. Mm. Um, and women uh, play a huge role Thank in you this, very much for uh, this topic on the table. Yeah. I really like this topic. Uh, I really think that as a man living in the 21st century, that anyway, women will take their place. <laughs> this is their time. This is the time for women. Women will take their place and they bring the leadership on the table. So what I want to do is to contribute, to, to contribute that, to, to help those women to take their place. We cannot just put away 50% of the population of our countries and just try to develop the country with 50 other percent. So we have to bring women on the table. Look, most of the time, when you bring women on the table, you have best, better results. And the development of the African continent I'm sure about it in the next 30 years, we based on women leadership. Mm. And speaking of, uh, of leadership, you yourself uh, have been uh, named or nominated Young Global Leader of the Year. This was in 2018 by the World Economic Forum, yeah. uh, which uh, coincidentally is uh, happening right now uh, yeah. again in Switzerland. Yeah. Um, how do you feel you can reconcile the notion of big business? Because you're tied you know, to banking with your current work yeah. and you've worked in the energy sector and you know, you're also trying to tap into some of these grassroots feelings or movements in Africa as well, the solutions, the homegrown solutions. How do you reconcile all those oh, elements? If you look what is what is going on on Davos at the moment, you will hear that Klaus Professor Klaus Schwab is talking about social business. He's insisting a lot on social business, and that's the way we can reconcile big business with social development. I think I think is a mission. It's not just um, corporate social responsibility. It's more than that. Each company today should have a strategy for social business, for social development. And if we succeed to reconcile the business and the social development, then I think we found something. And that's the fight that we all have to struggle for. And that's the point. And I think in Davos, some, sometimes you hear people talking about capital in Davos. So this is capitalism. This is the house of capitalism. Mm. But I think also that in the house of capitalism, we can find the best solution also from time for social development. And reconciliation is a good word.
Okay. Now, there is uh, something I read uh, in an article where uh, you did an interview with uh, Le Point magazine, and you said yeah. uh, you talked about dreaming up creating this kind of like an intellectual Olympics for Africa. Yeah, something along this those is my what? dream. Yeah, what? this is my dream is... by 2030. Yeah. Um, I imagine something between the what we call Olympiad, so Olympic game of Jean de Coubertin, yeah. and uh, um, between uh, what we call Interceltic des Jeunes de Lorient. It's the kind of festival as well. I imagine by 2030 that all African or all African diasporas, wherever they are in the world, they can come once, uh, two years, uh, every two years, come to visit one African country to have 21 days of festival, of game, talking about business, about politics, about art, have a lot of agoras. And I think this is the only way we can create a diaspora. Because if African that live in Africa and African diaspora can come together every year or every two years, some way, discuss together, talking about future, then we will create, we will create a common goal. And I really hope I will do that because this is my dream by 2030, is to create this, what I call, Afrikiad or Great Africa Tour. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, uh, Khaled Ige, thank you so much for being my guest on Paris Live. Thank you very much. I'm very happy. I was very delighted to, to talk about it. Excellent. With you. Well, hopefully we will meet again. <laughs> Me too. Thank okay, you very thank much. Thank you. So that was Khaled Ige, businessman and author of a book in French called L'Heure de l'Afrique, which will be published uh, under the title Time for Africa in English later this year. A little bit more culture to wrap up our Paris Live for today. The film The Orphanage from Afghan director Shah Banu Sadat was released in France in December. It's based on the true story. It's a portrait of a young man in the 1980s who daydreams of action-packed Bollywood heroics but finds himself in an orphanage as civil war breaks out in the country. Arafaz Ross and Hyams caught up with the director at the Cannes Film Festival last year to discuss how the film actually got made. It's no secret that your film was inspired by the unpublished diary of Anwar Hashimi. That's the same name as your directorial assistant. Is that the same yes. person? Yes. <laughs> yes, he was all over the credit <laughs> because we I used him and I abused him a lot <laughs> because he did the costume, he did the props, he he the story was inspired by his uh, his life and uh, he was my personal assistant and he also played in the film. <laughs> Which role does he play? He was uh, playing the supervisor. The yeah, the guy who was taking care of the children. Okay, so there are a lot of experiences in this film, lots of different scenes of boys seeking adventure, getting up to mischief, getting into trouble. Um, there's drama in it. There are also a lot of Hindi film songs yes. that you weave in and out that lighten the subject. But you're not really talking about a very light subject, are you? No, I think what I was really interested to picture, it was this survival mood that when you live in Afghanistan, it's so normal for everyone and no one even knows that it's called survival mode because you live in a chaotic, dramatic place that a lot of things happen one after another and you don't really find the time to digest or to react on them. 
I mean, if, for example, something bad happened to you, if you lose someone or if you are in a situation that is not really pleasant to be, you don't really find the time to cry about it or to express or to react on it. And things happen so quickly one after another. And you first you think about all this when you are out of the country. <laughs> and I was so interested to talk about this and to picture this because... And I think because of this that... People in Afghanistan, they are not really expressive. You look at the people's face and you cannot read their face. You cannot see if they are happy or if they are sad. And I thought that this is a typical Afghan and Afghanistan that I have to show. Because I was thinking, even when I was working on the character of Kodrat in the film, I was thinking that I should imagine that This is a documentary film, and if it is a documentary film, Kodrat will never let me know his character. He will never let me get close to him, that I analyze his character, that, ah, where he comes from, and now he feels like this, and this happened to him, and he, uh, he reacts on this like this. I thought, like, I should keep my distance with his character. That's why we don't really know that much about his character no we see him a lot exactly but he's not he's there and so we understand that he's the main protagonist but he's not the one who talks the most exactly and then i put this bollywood parts to help the audience to get a little bit into his inner world when he express his love or his wish for being loved or to lose a friend to cry for losing a friend or to uh, praising the memory of friendship or at the end the feeling of revenge so I thought yeah to use the Bollywood parts to express his feelings so the film is nourished with the details of Anwar Hashimi's own experiences lots of little details the Maradona football shirt the overturned burned out tank the chess game Yes, uh, but I think Anwar is a little bit angry at me because I change his story sometimes. That's why I didn't dare to set based on, but I said instead inspired by Anwar Hashemi because in the beginning I was so excited that I, I'm making something with his text. But later when uh, I had to write things, I thought like, oh my God, this text is so huge. And also it's happening during a very long time, during like eight, ten years. And it's like a lot of places and a lot of names and a lot of things that it only makes sense for the Afghan audience. So I had to um, simplify things and I had to get rid of a lot of characters and make things simpler and say the story in a, uh, in a compressed uh, time, in a shorter time. So Anwar was not really happy about it, but I think I had to, yeah, I, I did things that I thought is better for the story. Um, is showing at the director's fortnight with that football shirt and Maradona and the obvious um, admiration that the kids at that time in the late 1970s in Afghanistan had for these international football players. Yes. I mean, I don't really, I honestly, I don't have that much interest in football, but I am interested because of Anwar and because this part of the story, it was his story that I stole. 
and uh, he was always walking around with a Maradona t-shirt and then he was a very good player, football player and he had the curly long hair like Maradona and everyone called him Maradona because he was very good and he was dreaming to become a football player and he, he was about to go to the national team but then the civil war starts and he couldn't and still he's playing football like five times a day, five times a, a, a week and uh, I mean still he has very love for football but for me it's a little bit sad because he could be a very good football player but the war and the political situation of Afghanistan took the chance from him well we wish you all the very best with your film The Orphanage Par de Choir. <laughs> thank you so thank much thank you very much Sharbanu Sadat and that interview recorded by RFI's Rosson Hyams at the Cannes Film Festival last year and that's about a film uh, called The Orphanage RFI's Pick of the Month L'Indigo Sage comme des sauvages Sans les mots, sans les mots, sans les mots, sans les mots, les mots L'émotion, sans les mots, sans les mots, sans les mots, sans les mots, les mots L'émotion, sans les mots, sans les mots, sans les mots, sans les mots, les mots L'émotion, Sarundé Marquis Gad RFI Well, that brings us to a close for Paris Live today. Thank you for tuning in. And do join us again tomorrow at the same time, 1300 hours GMT across our FMs. And if you missed anything, you can find it online, rfienglish.com. Goodbye.